This podcast is brought to you by, by, by Civic Tech Innovation Network in partnership with Voice of Vets. Financing a new venture can be a daunting task, especially if you have minimal experience in soliciting funding. And with the pandemic having devastated many industries, many small organizations have had to rethink how to remain sustainable in these uncertain times. In this fourth Gem Lab meetup, we ask the questions, who are the funders and where does one begin looking for funding? During this particular conversation on financing, we learn more on funding strategies for civic tech and media innovation. We also learn how organizations seeking grant funding or support from contemporary funders can better position and prepare themselves. Joining the conversation today are Deepa Ayer, an impact investor at Luminate, Paul Mashikwane, founder of Sizzent Capital, and Ianu Fatoba, who is the communications associate at Budget Foundation. And finally, Roland Perold, the co-founder and COO at Volume. So for today's conversation, I'd like for us to discuss and learn more on funding strategies for civic tech and media innovation and how organizations seeking grant funding or support from contemporary funders in general can better position and prepare themselves. Today, I want to center our conversations around four areas of interesting models and approaches for how innovators can fund and sustain their ideas or platforms. These four areas we'll delve deeper into in this hour will be philanthropy, corporates, government, and also hear from entrepreneurs in the civic tech and media space who've successfully funded and monetized their ideas and platforms. So Deepa, I want to come to you first. Tell us a bit more about yourself, what you do, and what an impact investor is. Thank you so much. I work at Luminate. We were formerly known as Amidiar Network and are part of the Amidiar Group. Luminate is a global philanthropic organization that manages the capital of Pierre Amidiar, one of the founders of eBay. We invest globally in several different markets in Africa, largely in South Africa, Nigeria, Kenya, and, you know, our Basically, investing using a range of investment instruments, equity, debt, grants, recoverable grant, investing in funds um, to build an ecosystem around specific issue areas. For us, there are four issue areas. Civic empowerment is one of them. Data and digital rights is another one. Independent media is a third. And um, financial transparency is a fourth. And what an impact investor is, to me, is really someone who is focused on an ecosystem as an investor, um, thinking about returns, not just in terms of financial returns, but also in terms of the impact that you know it has on society um, at large. And also thinking of that impact in terms of what's most relevant for operators running you know, the businesses and nonprofit organizations that we often engage with. But I'll stop there <laughs> and um, I'm excited to hear from everyone else in the panel. Paul, I want to come to you next. Tell us a bit about what you do at Season Capital. Yeah, simple. Thank you, firstly, to have considered myself to be one of the guests here. So, firstly, from Season Capital, we are a private equity firm that is made up of a number of seasoned business leaders in our country. So you have a lot of high-profile business leaders who form part of that organization. And mainly we look to invest in high-growth sectors, the likes of artificial intelligence, healthcare, education, and the list goes on. And so 
However, even my our portfolio expands beyond that, particularly uh, my personal one, because uh, I'm also the head of uh, Ultimate Holdings, which does capital raising on behalf of a number of clients. And we have companies, those who look to raise money. So when it comes to capital raising, we understand the landscape properly on how companies uh, can raise money. And I must say that uh, part of this emulates from my own story. Back in 2015, I created a company called Artificial Intelligence Group, and it was a challenge for me to raise two and a half million to buy an artificial intelligence software. And uh, thereafter, it was totally evident that people are facing the very same challenge that I'm facing. And uh, when we created or started working on Ultimate Holdings, it was very beneficial to really sit on the other side of viewing applications and helping companies to raise money. So uh, one is very passionate about that. And we really are well up about what it takes to get the money. So for now, I'll just pin it there. Awesome. Deepa, I want to come back to you. In your line of work, what interesting models or approaches have you seen for how innovators can fund and sustain their ideas and platforms? One is really ideating on a core vision early. I feel like there are a lot of funders in different ecosystems that have different strategic agendas. And, you know, so often you see startups that are thinking about that funding ecosystem instead of thinking about who their stakeholders are, what their product market fit is, and like really iterating on that early on. Um, and so really sort of honing in on product market fit early and kind of thinking about who your communities are and who your stakeholders are and really focusing on those groups. And hopefully, I think a lot of teams are also sort of thinking about that early runway in terms of where their capital is coming from. And hopefully it's coming from a funder that's either able to provide money unrestricted if it's grant capital or it's coming, you know, from sort of communities that are and by communities, I mean, stakeholders that are crowdfunded or, you know, family and friends that are kind of able to give a little bit of runway to really experiment and ideate to get to a product that is kind of something that is post pilot and free scale. And so overall, you know, I think the most innovative ideas that I've seen are ones that sort of stick to a vision early, find that vision, stick to it early. And it's one that, you know, is proximate to sort of the market in terms of who the consumer is and who they're building for without really getting too influenced by disparate funders, disparate strategies in some sense. And there's an interesting point that you say there, that it's key that you don't get distracted by different funders and, you know, different opportunities. How do you remain focused as an organization on your goal? Roland? Yeah, geez, that's a great question. I think focusing on your core early users or clients, I think is where you'll find the answers, you know, um, even through pivoting through different ideas, we were very focused on our users early on when, when we were still building a software platform for community radio stations to help them with producing better local news. And I think those are the days that we started with you at, at Jam Lab almost four years ago. And today we're running a podcast production company producing podcasts for impact-driven organizations like Human Rights Watch, Doctors Without Borders, Access Now, and the like. And I think for us, as a podcast production company, our clients are our core stakeholders. And focusing on that, getting that first client, really figuring out what is the value that we can create that they are willing to pay for, I think was the right thing for us to do. And it's 
a signal that you're chasing sustainability as a as a social enterprise as opposed to just trying to tailor your story to whatever grant maker is looking for a certain vertical of company. Awesome. Roland, I'm going to come back to you on that. But before we get into the nitty gritty of volume and your success story, I want to come to Paul, you know, who can speak to both corporate and government. And if you could share a little bit about the unique ways of raising funds um, when traditional avenues have failed. Yeah. So I must also include a part of traditional ways, but maybe just to also mention that normally when it comes to funding, if you're not uh, approaching the institutions and companies out there, you start with the three Fs. And the three Fs being uh, family, friends, and fools, those who are willing to bet on you. And uh, families are given. If you have someone who's willing to put their neck on the line for you, whether to get a, a loan for you or they already have the money themselves and stuff like that, friends as well, uh, they can come in that fashion. And fools, I won't speak to that. But then you have other unique ways. The thing is, is when you really want to raise money, you have to really like say, what is a road less traveled? And approaches that a lot of companies don't usually look into. And some of those ways, it would be to say, can I partner with a company that is well established within the field in which I'm in? Because many a times that when you raise money is issues of credibility or the fund does not believe in that you can retain their money. But if you have a big brother in the industry that you say you attach yourself next to you, talk to them and say, this is who we are, this is what we're trying to do, and we've done proof of concept and stuff like that, and they buy into your vision. Then you say, we would also like to raise money, and they can then say, okay, you can put us as a reference. You can put us up as a company that supports you. So in that way, it gives confidence to the financier that if we give you money, you know, there's what we call branding by association. If we give you money, uh, you certainly will bring it back because you have this credible player next to you. That's one. And the second way that is unconventional is whereby you get a mentor, a mentor that is well-to-do financially. And those mentors, particularly because they will be seeing you rise through your journey. I mean, if you are impressive enough, they will even offer to find you before you even ask. But if it comes to a point whereby you want them to find you, you can then just ask them and say, hey, I'm working on this and so forth, and you've been seeing my progress and stuff like that. Now I want to go to the next level. Can you find me? Those are easier to sell because they believe in you. You know, you've been following their advice and stuff like that. So that's the second one. And the third one, it would be to look at enterprise development departments within banks. So banks like APSA and other Bank, as well as F&B, they have enterprise development divisions. And those enterprise development divisions, they don't look at funding applications like the bank itself look at them. They are a little bit lenient to companies. You know, they are relaxed with their criteria and they understand they have to give you a bit of an assist. So I would say look into that because they certainly are very, very much helpful. Because if you just look at the bank, you'll be discouraged before going in. But go into the bank and say, what is your enterprise development division and who heads it? And most likely, or the best way is to always approach the head. If you don't know who's the head, I mean, all of that information can be found on Google. And fourthly, I will also say, 
Group yourself with other peers in the industry. The same companies that you have in the industry, group yourself and approach any financier. And people and companies, they tend to listen to a collective than individuals. Hence, we have bargaining bodies, you have the unions and so forth, because companies, they listen to people more when they are a collective. So if you go to any company that finances and you say, we are a group of companies which do the same thing, or we might not be doing the same thing, but we're entrepreneurs from different sectors and we're looking for funding and this is how it's divided and be detailed and be professional, they'll mostly likely listen to you and try to assist. And maybe in closing, example, on this point is that, you know, when you want something from someone, ask them how to get it from them. Then to just look at the criteria online, get them to uh, take you through. It's like, Trying to win a cooking show or an idols, if you had access to one of the judges, you ask them and say, what are the things that when you are there, you look at to really get people on the other side? And people most likely, they will help you because it will be a trial and error, but they will say, go and fix this. Okay, go and do this. Go and do this. Always, that strategy works 100% of the time. Ask the people that you want something from them, how to get it from them. They will tell you. Uh, Surprisingly, a lot of people tend not to do that. You just send your applications without proper guidance, hoping that it's approved. But if it's not approved, always ask them and say, hey, I understand you cannot prove it. How can I improve? Or what did I go wrong? And they will be frank with you. Over to you, Seb. Deep, I see you nodding a lot there. What has been your experience at Ruminate and in other areas of work where you've worked with funding applications? I totally agree. I also think that, you know, as an operator, a founder, it can often be daunting and difficult to approach a funder in that capacity because of a certain power dynamic that exists where one person is controlling capital and its outflow and the other is, you know, building something that needs that capital. You know, for me personally, I do try to be as available as possible and sort of believe that, you know, my time is something that should be as accessible to anyone within the broader pipeline ecosystem as possible um, and believe in sort of demystifying the loopholes and and, um, aspects of sort of um, an investment process for those that we interact with and fund with. But, you know, I think overall... um, as, as you know, Paul mentioned, I think a lot of different funders have different strategies or visions or approaches to like investment processes or to applications. And so doing your research in advance and understanding, you know, who you're applying to, who you're funding with, who those individuals who are the gatekeepers there are and what they funded in the past can go a long way, I think. And I also think, honestly, some of the best people to connect with prior to interacting with a funder are others who that funder has funded in some sense, Um, because you'll really get an understanding of whether, you know, the funder is someone who you want to work with in the first place. Um, If the operators are positive on their track record, then that's like a great sort of, you know, signal. And if it's highly restricted funding or funding that sort of came with a lot of conditions attached or funding that came in ways that were inconvenient to the organization, you'll get that feedback back as well um, directly from operators who have interacted with the investor. And so I think overall speaking to the community of startups, of peers within the ecosystem, like that's also a really good place to sort of get insights on who's out there and what their approach is. Awesome. Thanks, Deepa. Paul, I want to come back to a point that you made about getting a mentor. 
I'm starting out. I don't really have much connections. I don't know a lot of people. How do I go about finding that mentor? That's a good question. Here's the thing. Everything in life is relational. Up until artificial intelligence is really a serious thing in our lives, you'll have to go through someone. And having to go through someone, you must understand human dynamics and relations. And many a times that you start off not knowing anyone. Uh, I'll give an example with my own life. Where I'm at today, it was not fundamentally because what my father did in sense that he unlanded some of his networks to me. It was not that. I had to establish every network by myself. And uh, a lot of those, early on, I approached a lot of high-profile business leaders in South Africa and even around the world. Actually, a lot of billionaires have already approached very young. I was was just excited about life and hopeful about success. And uh, I wrote to a lot of millionaires, billionaires. In South Africa, I met a lot. And many people, they even ask me, how did you do it? Because these people don't have time. Surprisingly, if you approach someone really being interested in who they are, they will give you the time of the day, particularly when you're seeking advice, not money. If you come up or from the onset, your first email, you're asking for $2 million, uh, I mean, come on, they, they might not even respond. But if you are interested in them, you research them and you say, hey, Paul, I see that uh, you did want to train. I admire that. Many a time that people respond to you when you are singing their praises. That's just as a human fact. If you come praising someone and admiring them, they warm up to you immediately. And if you come not asking for favors initially, people warm up to you. Because these rich people and a lot of successful people, they are used to people asking for things every time. So if you come with a different approach, not asking for anything, but advice, picking their brain, their mind, they will mostly listen to you. Today, uh, I mean, in my companies, like let's just talk about Citizen Capital, we have a lot of high-profile business leaders in there, like a lot, all of them, except maybe myself. So how one did that is that a lot, some of them, they've seen me rise over the years. Some of them, I approached them recently, and I said, this is my vision, this is what I'm trying to do, and they bought into it. So here's the thing. When you go to events, unfortunately, now we're doing virtuals and stuff. Always seek to talk to these people because you find that a speaker speaks and no one approaches him after the talk. Or the majority of the people, they don't want to go and ask him and say, what's your email or how can we get in touch with you? They just go home. You must always look for opportunities to network. You are in an event like this. Look for an email of some of these members. Like some of these people who are on this panel are very key individuals. They might not give you what you're looking for, but they can show you the the right door or point you in the right direction. So always look for an opportunity to network and go to the right places and always research key individuals in your industry. Sometimes you have bumped into them at malls and you never knew who they were. It's like you're bumping into someone who could change your life on the spot. I'll give you an example. About three weeks back, I bumped into a gentleman by the name of Lazarus Zim. I've been trying to get hold of this gentleman and he's been avoiding me. I hope he doesn't see this though. <laughs> and so I saw him parking and I was in the car. And as he was passing, I was, hey, Dr. Lazarus Zim. And somehow it sparked a conversation. I said, what's your number? I had already had his email, but on his email, he was not really non-committal. He gave me his number on the spot. And from there, we'll be talking and hopefully good things will follow. So my point is that If you don't know who these people are in your industry, you're going past people 
at the mall, at events, not knowing that this is the person who could change your life. So always seek for an opportunity to network via email and so forth, and always be genuinely interested in the people themselves before you want favors. Don't start with favors. It repels them. Awesome. Don't start with favors. It repels them. Eyanu, I want to come with you next. Tell us a bit about yourself, the work that you do, and give us a brief overview of what budget is all about. Thank you so much, Chepo. What we do primarily is to demystify government data, and um, especially in the aspect of public finance. And we have several ways by which we do this. Budget was established 11, 10 years ago. We're going to celebrate our 10th anniversary in September. And, you know, within a period of 10 years, we've been able to kind of scale what we do because we started with simplifying budgets at the federal level into simple tweets and infographics just for citizens to be able to understand. Because we realized that, you know, um, citizens are always unable to um, understand, you know, government data, public data, and accurately interpret it and know how to hold government accountable with it. So we came in to bridge that gap, not just presenting it in simple format, but also presenting it in infographics such that people would be able to understand. But beyond that, we also, our work of raising the standards of transparency and accountability in Nigeria, and, you know, by stretch, three other African countries last year, is based on, like, three copulas. And that's, number one, providing civic tech solutions, number two, open government partnership, and um, three, stakeholder management. Very briefly, just the second stage for civic tech solutions. So beyond infographics, we also try to do some of those products that helps, you know, citizens to access real-time data on different aspects of the government. So we have a budget, sometimes we have a budget, we have different sectors of the economy, uh, we have health, education, and then we want people to be able to see what their government is spending on these sectors and see how much is being discussed and know what questions to ask the government. So we have about you know, five products within that space. And then open government partnership is, you know, there's a coalition of civil society organizations that we come together to you know, press further in making data available, open data, especially at the subnational level. Because we also discover that people often get you know, lost with the federal government, that national government in quotes, and then they fail to you know, probe the subnational. So we thought that open government financial would be able to would help us to achieve that, you know, in 36 states in Nigeria right now. And um, you know, but beyond that, also we have um, stakeholder management where we partner with stakeholders that are also interested in what we do. And then by that, we try to multiply and replicate what it is that we do. Because right now, you would see all of organizations, you know, they can are also also presenting budget in simple infographics. So we wanted to move beyond that into okay, you know what? Why don't we replicate this capacity that we have in other CSO so that we can have a very wide landscape of people that can also do this. So it's not just budgets. And by extension, from there, we discovered that we needed to take some of these things to the grassroots also. So we moved into, you know, establishing another arm of budgets called Tracker. And Tracker tracks, you know, government projects at the grassroots level in all 36 states. We have project tracking officers in all 36 states where, you know, we track the project, construction project, and see what exactly is going on at the grassroots. So what we do is kind of holistic. It's not just in the urban area. It's also, you know, to probe into the, the local parts where local governments, state governments, where people do not really, really focus on and then see how government is working for them also. So I think I'd just like to you know, stop there from the brief introduction. Thank you, Ayanu. You are also not only in Nigeria, but three other countries. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that journey of where you guys started, okay. your funding models, and how you got to being in three countries in a space of 10 years. Thank you for that question. I really like it. Interestingly, I was talking to somebody yesterday and then the person was just telling me that we have some of the big funders. Of course, there's somebody from Luminate. Luminate 
it is part of our funders. We have um, Ila Meridian Gates, we have Makato. And then he was like, how did you guys do it? And I told him, I said, actually, we didn't start like that. You know, Bajan was like just an idea incubated in Lagos at the CCO. He was joining the hackathon and Shimoni just presented that idea. We had several orders, I can't even remember, at that hackathon. And, you know, from there, it just grew out like that. And for a period of between a year and three years, it was at CCO being incubated. So it was there for that period. And, you know, of course, CCO lent their um, assistance in you know, creating and providing an office space for budget. But apart from that, you know, for that period, it was mainly bootstrapping and it wasn't also from his personal pocket. He did that in three ways. Number one, there was a Shoka Fellowship. He won the award and then they were paying his salary for years. So he didn't have to worry about, okay, where would I get money to? Because one of the things with, you know, civic tech ideas, new ideas is the fact that when you probably leave your job or something, you can't even take care of yourself, talk less of bootstrapping because the funding won't always come at the beginning, at the initial stage. So he had Ashoka Fellowship paying his salary. And then, but beyond that, he also came together to look at the fact that, okay, you know what, we need certain level of expertise and services and we cannot afford it. So what they did was that they tried to look for partnerships. Okay, who are people that can give us the value that we want? And then that was how we brought in the co-founder, who is a CTO. Because, okay, it's a civic tech organization. We want to build in the technology. We want to build tools that would help citizens to hold government accountable. And then he is not a tech person. He was working with First Bank before. And then he identified our co-founder, who interestingly also was at the academy to present another idea of which his own idea didn't scale. But they looked at it and said, okay, you know what, Shane's idea is very good. Let's, you know, take the idea. And he provided technical expertise and they didn't have to look for a service that they have to pay. So in that way, they came, you know, together to share that. And so in form of human resources. So the next thing we did was, you know, to also examine, uh, trying to, to a financing model within the organization. Because like I said, the funding didn't start rolling in, you know, initially. But, you know, we thought that, okay, it would be better about budget as an NGO. But later on, we thought, okay, you know what, let's build like a spin-off of budget that is for profit. We were already good with data visualization. We're already good with, you know, um, the, um, uh, what's it called, like presenting annual reports and infographics and stuff. So we had private organizations that wanted to do the same thing we do for the public. And then we thought, okay, it's okay to actually monetize this thing. So we created a spin-off of budgets where we actually could make money, right? And that was like a backup plan that, okay, let's even say that at the end of the day, this thing does not work. How do we, how do we scale out this sustain ourselves? Because fellowships would end you know, at some point. And then the last one that I'd like to make also uh, with respect to that is, you know, our idea. Like I said, we started with, you know, simple tweets, simple infographics. But as time went on, we had to expand our business model, our value creation model. You know, to accommodate because, like I said, now you have tons of organizations that are presenting infographics, uh, present budgets in infographics. So we couldn't have stayed there. Like we needed something more, like that would be like an advantage, more value that we are creating within that space. And then after that, we started. That was when we developed, we joined OGP, that's Open Government Partnership. And what do we do with that? We try to help all the six states to simplify their budget to build portal. So we have something called the Open State Portal. On that portal, it's just simplified versions of citizens of projects, states projects in a very simplified version for people to access it, people to, you know, be able to see that, you know, the citizens. So right now we have, you know, partnership with Kaduna State Government. We built for, you know, six other states and then we are building for signing up with more states. And lastly, you know, from there we moved to capacity building. We felt, okay, we had enough, like we can say that we are professionals in this sector. So why don't we replicate this? So we started, you know, capacity building 
for some of these states, CSOs, journalists, media. And those were the ideas we were presenting to funders that, okay, you know what, we're not just staying on, you know, simple infographics. We also want to move beyond that to create more value to, you know, track projects in the grassroots. We need tracking, project tracking officers, and then we need funds to be able to bring in some of those tracking officers and by extension, community champions who are also helping the project tracking officers. So you can see, you know, the, the, the framework and then the landscape with which we try to kind of expand the value that we provide such that it's not just a short-term thing and then after this problem we are solving is done, then we are also done. No, we're always finding ways to, you know, expand the value that we create. And then from there, we moved to Ghana. We saw that it was the same issue with Ghana. We didn't start Ghana because we felt we needed to understand the political landscape in Ghana. And then we had to send people there, you know, how to also push it to funders. Okay, this is what we're trying to do. And, you know, then from there, Syria alone and then Liberia, which literally happened actually last year. You know, and then it was by extension of what we have done in Nigeria in nine years, study the framework, study the landscape, know exactly what works and what does not work, and then now carry that to the other countries. So i like to just stop because of time. I like that. Nine years of hard work internally before scaling to other regions or other countries. And with that, I want to come to Roland. It's really a nice segue to coming to you guys. You started volume sort of around that time when you joined the Accelerator program almost four or five years ago. What has been yeah. the journey like to getting to where you are today? I think started with this idea, sort of launched the first iteration of it after that the panel took a chance on us with just an idea. And as we came to an end of, of that six months process, the MDIF launched the South African Media Innovation Program in South Africa. I think the timing was just right. We were able to apply for that and we were fortunate to be one of the national winners and, and received the grant in, in January 2018. And so I think since then we've been 100% focused on being a social enterprise, working as a podcast production company. And the type of clients that we work with are mostly international organizations, large NGOs, think tanks, and they all do incredible work, but they do sometimes struggle with, you know, telling the stories of those incredible projects. And so we use the power of storytelling and audio, and we tell those stories. And so it's been, you know, the the subject matter is always fascinating. We work with incredible organizations. So we can only be thankful for how everything turned out. Roland, you guys pivoted once or twice on your journey before getting to this point. Tell us about that and why pivoting is so key when you're building a startup or organization. Yeah, I think it's a tricky thing. You know, I think at some point I felt like if you haven't pivoted six or 10 times, then you're not running a startup, which I think is a bit potentially problematic, you know, but when to pivot is a very interesting question. You know, like I said, I think especially also thinking about how you build a business and starting small and working on getting the small wins. You know, we were lucky to get into Jam Lab with just an idea, but we focused very much on our core idea, which was at that stage, you know, like I said before, helping community radio stations produce better local news. And we built like an MVP. We got it, the initial bunch of users. And I think due to having applied to the South African Media Innovation Program with a tangible MVP and a few people that used it, and we weren't just pitching an idea, I think helped us get into that program. But then you're grafting and you're looking for that business model. And at some point you realize, okay, you know, you've knocked your head in against the same wall one too many times. And it's time to consider, is there other opportunities that we can take advantage of? At that stage, I realized 
Paul, my co-founder in, in Volume, was actually an incredible podcast producer and an investigative journalist. And there was an opportunity that came up to basically pivot from being a platform to enable other people to produce content to being a content producer first, you know, ourselves. And so initially we were sort of dabbling in both, you know, one foot on, on each side. And, and then we realized, well, to give it a proper shot, we need to double down and really focus. I think to Deepa's point earlier, you know, it is very, very useful and I think powerful to kind of focus on a core idea and iterate on that. Absolutely. And speaking of core idea, I want to ask you a follow-up question. But before I ask you that, I want to ask Deepa and Paul, when looking at applications for funding from organizations, what is it that you look for in an organization or in an application? Deepa, I want to begin with you. I think generally it's less about the application for me, more about sort of meeting people early in person or or virtually, of course, (laughs) given the times we now live in and having interactions with them to really understand their motivations for building what they're building and understand their story and why they're doing the work that they are committing themselves to in some sense. And, you know, I think also sort of understanding if they're a first time founder, like understanding sort of what's really driving their strategic mindset around how they're approaching the sector and the ecosystem, you know, to Ayanu's point, is this sort of an organization or a company that is thinking slow to go fast later in some ways to the point around sort of perfecting a model for nine years and then scaling to other countries after that? Or is it someone who is in execution mode? I mean, I mean, everyone is always in execution mode in some sense, but I think sometimes you meet founders who are very focused on funding ecosystem and less focused on sort of what they're building in some ways. And that's really a challenge because I do think that funders send very mixed messages to the ecosystem and that power dynamic is real. And it's like a difficult one to manage because people need money. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think what I'm really looking for is an understanding of the people and the team and an understanding of the problem as well that they're trying to solve. Because I think in the civic tech ecosystems and in the media ecosystem, so often you are building you know, content-based platforms or building public resources or building tech products that can often be technology first without really thinking about, okay, who are the people and what are the power dynamics that one is seeking to influence and what is kind of problem that one is seeking to solve and how have these teams built data around that problem to really like identify the strategic directions that they might take. So I think assessing like that is really what, you know, I sort of try to focus on in early conversations. Um, It's less about sort of a formal application and like kind of uh, filling in lots of things like that is kind of, you know, how other funders might work. Awesome. Paul, corporates, governments, what do they look for when you start approaching them for funding or support? Yeah, so I wanted to say, firstly, it depends and uh, how it depends. Firstly, I'll, I'll mention regions. Uh, so if you look at South African uh, finances, they are more returns driven. And you look at more developed economies, it's always how many people are you reaching. And they can even find you pre-revenue. Uh, you'll find a lot of these companies, your Google, your Facebook, they were funded before they even made any cent, even WhatsApp. So in South Africa, you don't find financiers who look at that, who are fundamentally mainly only focusing on that. They are more about how are you bringing the money back. So in South Africa, maybe just to speak to our context and maybe even the continent, it's more about return on investment, ROI. 
So if you look at that, whenever you make any application, is that you can write a beautifully written you know, business plan and so forth. But the fundamentals of that is that, is there a need for what you're offering, number one? And they can also then jump at the end to look at the numbers and then work it backwards. Because if the numbers make sense, it justifies why they should read your business plan in its entirety. And it's not just also the factor that get a good accountant who can put together the great numbers. There should be a clear need, a proven concept in the market that definitely the market requires this because you can ideologically and idealistically have a great idea that makes sense to you, but the market might not respond as you think. So you always have to test your ideas with actual market feedback, whereby you take it into the market and you see how the market reacts. And once the market reacts good, and you can then say, okay, according to the patterns that we have seen, what is the rate of growth? And then you can do projections and then put numbers which are reasonable in your business plan. And then so with a lot of us, particularly as investors, we are not just like financiers because financiers is all about how do you bring back the money. You have a lot of uh, DFIs and I also want to advise a lot of people to look into DFIs. And I know a lot of people are discouraged approaching your CFAS, IDCs and many others because we always hear them preaching that we have a lot of money to deploy, but few stories of people, those who have gotten the money. If you try yourself, you don't get the money. So with them, the approach is different. It's just about how can you bring back the money with the interest rate. Investors is how can you exponentially grow the value of the investment in there, maybe with sides of them exiting at a better space. So I would say it depends on regions and it depends on the funder that you're approaching. Ian, you're nodding a lot and I see Roland as well is nodding a lot. What has been the experience like for budget when submitting applications? What are key things that you are doing to stand out or to make sure that you secure that funding that you're looking for? Okay, so very quickly, let me just say this. I just remembered an experience I had where, you know, somebody was giving a speech on this funding thingy, and then he was telling his audience that you have to shoot your shots. You must always shoot, you know. And then I was like, it's okay to shoot your shot. I'm not saying that, but you have to shoot it the right way. You have to prepare that shot before you shoot it when it comes to, you know, funders. And I'd like to mention or reiterate one of the points that Paul made earlier. And that is the fact that it is your donor's interest, the funder's interest that determines the kind of idea. So you can't just say, okay, create a landscape of 20 funders and then start sending proposals. No, you have to research and see what exactly their interest is and find a way to bring in your own vision into their interest. Because any funder, anybody that wants to check your program, the first thing they want to see is how your vision mirrors their interest. Do you understand? So that's one of the things that you you have to do. I just thought I should chip that in. Then for budget, like you know, every other speaker already said, you can't take away impact. And I think that's one of the things that we are able to leverage at budget for every of our proposals and every of our... Yeah, you can't deny the numbers. You know, how do you interpret the fact that within nine years, we started with just the federal government and then we have expanded to three states in Nigeria. The only reason we are not in the other two states is because of the Boko Haram and all the, you know, bandit stuff and then we feel it's so safe. And then we have 36 project tackling officers and by extension, we have about 700 community champions that take, you know, this budget um, education certification to the grassroots by budget. And then how also do you interpret the fact that between nine years we have been able to build like five tech products. We have the open state portal, we have the SMS solution. And the fact that you are able to look at the fact that all these solutions get us to every part of demography, 
both literate and illiterate. So when we launched the open state portal, we felt like, okay, people in the grassroots, they don't have access to you know, internet and stuff. How can we include them? And then we launched an SMS solution, just text. Stapa 533542, a particular number, and it gives you their locations. And then when you when you highlight all of this in your impact report on your impact story, the funders can't deny that, okay, these people have been working. We have the state of sales program that the Bill and the Gates Foundation Fund. And then where we analyze the fiscal sustainability of all 36 states in Nigeria, we analyze their, how they are able to pay their required expenditure, capital expenditure, their loan repayment, and all of that. And then we use that to forecast and decide whether they are sustainable. They have to find better ways to create IGR to you know, get funding instead of depending on the federal government for allocation. And then when you put all of these numbers together in an impact report, you know, like Paul was saying, in a storytelling format, and you try to tell them, okay, this is what we are doing, this is what we have done, and this is how we have been able to know. And that's what we leverage every time we're a proposal. So it's not just about shooting the shots. You have to shoot it the right way. You have to prepare it the right way. The report, what story are you telling? What success stories are you telling? And even when they go there to check, we do outcome harvesting. And then some of these donors, they come to come and check the communities. So if we tell them that we have 30 something business, they come themselves to come and check that, okay, is it true that you guys have actually done this? And they found out that we even did more. We just underreported. So when you have these stories, when you have these numbers, they cannot deny it. So, and that is one of the things that civic organizations should focus on. It doesn't have to be like budget, you know, that six people know. The little impacts that you have, try to visualize it, try to tell it in a story in such a way they can see that, okay, if these people have more capacity, they will do more. Thank you. Thanks, Ianu. And we've got about just under 10 minutes left for our conversation. And Roland, I want to come to you next. Similar questions. You guys secured an investment deal with the Media Development Investment Fund earlier this month. Tell us about the experience, but also include how you've approached applying for donor funding for volume. Thanks, Topo. Yeah, look, I mean, it's been an incredible experience going through that process just because we've had a relationship with that organization, with that funder for three years now. So I think when you get to the point where you do an equity deal, knowing who you're working with and who you're going on a probably a quite a long journey with helps a lot. I think it's quite a daunting task if you're pitching to an equity investor that you know almost nothing about and you know that you're going to have to walk a long road together. But just in terms of, I think, to your second point, as entrepreneurs, we always have these big visions of how to make a dent in the universe. But I think one of the most important lessons that I've learned over the last couple of years is the value of starting small and starting with an uncomplicated product, focusing on a smaller market, trying to get to that first revenue stream going and building a small sustainable business where you're covering, building your team, covering salaries for a couple of employees and showing that success, even though it isn't necessarily something that's completely changed the world necessarily or is the next big thing. I think building that credibility and creating a track record enables you to get to the next point where it's like, okay, you know, I'm now selling you, I'm pitching you on the next phase of my vision, but you can at least point to something that worked. And I think a lot of, in my experience, that is also like the best way to approach funders because you're not there willing to compromise on a bunch of things just to secure the funding. You actually have a leg to stand on and you also have a much better idea of how to use that capital in the most sensible way. If you've already like ran your business, even if it is on a, on a very small scale for a while. Cool. Thanks, Roland. Deepa, two questions from Maurice. How do civic tech solutions balance between sustainability and market education to pay for their solutions? 
And then the other one is, is there room for commercial investments to civic tech and media on the continent? I'll take the first one. I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all answer on that. I think it's sort of unique to different organizations. I think, you know, budget's example of kind of figuring out the core of your work and sticking to that in some ways um, goes really far when thinking about how to balance between different types of funding and different types of grant revenue versus earned revenue and which channels of earned revenue to pursue that are high margin and and worth your time in some sense. So I do think the balance is there in terms of when using a decision framework to assess like, okay, what are new streams of revenue that one might pursue? Really thinking about it in terms of how is it core to the central mission of the organization or the company, but also, you know, is it high margin? Is it worth your time in certain ways? And if it isn't, are there intangible benefits that it might be bringing that are worth the investment? up front in some sense. To the second question. Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely room. I think there's also sort of a question of, you know, broadly speaking, I think there needs to be more patient capital that is sort of willing to wait, you know, a certain amount of time. I think there definitely needs to be more liquidity at at all stages of the growth cycle in some sense. So I, I think there's definitely like a lot of room for it, especially as you're seeing a lot of folks incorporate in ways that are suiting tax needs, as well as sort of the needs of regulation like across the ecosystem in different ways. And so I think overall, there's definitely space, but we do need like a lot more patient investors as as well. Awesome. Deepa, one last question that's related to what you answered to Maurice on his first question. Should organizations be looking at a mixed financing or monetizing model for their organizations or platforms? And how can they go about that? What are those models that they should be looking at? Yeah, I mean, definitely should. And again, I think the two folks we've heard from as operators on this call are prime examples of models that one can use to look at, you know, how to build out earned revenue streams and think about them strategically. So again, I think, is it sort of a cost center or is it actually something that is driving margin for you over time is a good way of starting and and really thinking about who the stakeholders are and who the communities are that you're looking to build a sales pipeline around is crucial. We've got about a minute left before we have to part ways. And I want to ask all of you, we'll start with Paul. What does the future look like for funding for organizations post the pandemic? Where should we look for for funding? Where are the opportunities? Yeah, firstly, do enough research about funding organizations. There's a lot of money, capital looking for opportunities. Trust me, there's a lot of it. And money is liquid. It goes where it can create more of itself. It goes where where it knows that someone can deploy it better and create value. So as an entrepreneur, always seek to know all the available options that you have. And of this day and age, we have different platforms to raise money, like crowdfunding and so forth. But I'm more of a proponent of being uh, traveling the road less traveled, whereby you really seek ways of uh, extracting value out of ways that a lot of people don't go into, whereby uh, some of those things I've mentioned early on, you know, getting mentors. But the, the best form of funding is from customers. Nothing beats that. And that's also the confidence that the market shows in what you do. So if you are a for-profit company, if there are ways that you can monetize what you can do on a lean model, always seek to use your customers as financiers. And in that way, you don't have to give out equity, 
you just have to sweat out your own resources to make it happen. So ultimately, we say, don't just seek to reach many numbers, but reach the market that counts. So it's always about people that really counts, the audience that counts, that will really generate you money. Deepa, before I let you go, 30 seconds, where should we be looking? Inside yourselves, I think, but also like more broadly, um, you know, to the communities who you're working with. I think just understanding what the problem is, is really the first step. So, yeah. Thanks a lot, Deepa. Ianu, I want to come to you next. 30 seconds. Well, I just want to reiterate, you know, the need for research, networking and relationship. You can't take away this thing from knowing the opportunities. If you walk up to one person now, they won't up their head tell you about 25 least they will tell you the ones that are working for them. But you must be able to research and network to find out what will work for you or what your business needs. And I find out that that's one of the ways that you know people are really faltering these days. Do the work, do the research. And researching doesn't mean you search in Google Engine or whatever, you know, by people that you know, relationships. Even if what they agree doesn't directly relate to you, they can always point you, like um, Paul was saying the other time, but they can always point you to the right direction, to the place to look into, you know, look for the big guys, those that have gone before you and you relate with them, talk to them. Most of them are always willing to point you to the right direction. So we cannot overemphasize the need for research, networking, and relationship in seeing and knowing the right people to call to ask for funding. Thank you. Thank you, Roland. 30 seconds. Where are the opportunities for funding? Look, I would echo what Paul said. I think that that's extremely true. And then I would just add that I think the pandemic brought the future 10 years closer and that will start revealing itself I think over the next couple of years so I think the rate of innovation new things in both media and civic tech is going to be incredible to see so yeah it's going to be all around us awesome thank you so much to Deepa Paul Yanu and Roland for all your insights and we have to leave it there this is our final Jam Lab meetup in partnership with the Civic Tech Innovation Network for the year but together we'll be back in September to bring you Jam Fest and the Civic Tech Innovation Forum where we will continue and take this conversation forward. So do make sure that you register and you are part of the conversation. In the meantime, please do join us next week for a special Jam Lab meetup with Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. But let's not limit our interactions to just these Jam Lab meetups. Please feel free to reach out and chat to us. Email us if you have any ideas on how we can collaborate and drive actual impact. Remember to visit the Civic Tech Innovation Network on civictech.africa and learn more about the work they do in the civic space. And also, while you're there, check out jamlab.africa and connect with us. Thank you once again for joining us. Thank you to Deepa, Paul, Yanu, and Roland for your time. And thank you. This was informational and benefiting to you and your organization. We hope to see you at the next meetup. Thank you and have a great afternoon. Thank you, Tsepo, and all the panelists who joined us for this conversation. Remember to follow us on all our social media platforms. Follow JamLab on Twitter at JamLab Africa and CTIN at Civic Tech Africa. See you all next time. This podcast was brought to you by Civic Tech Innovation Network in partnership with Voice of Vets.